Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. One of the themes that we always talk about on this show is how we can think of design as ideologies made artifact. That through the acts of design, we are cementing a point of view, a way of seeing the world, an idea about how to live. What design does is it takes these ideas and it makes them concrete in some way. So they in turn shape how we live. This is perhaps no more evident than in infrastructure. The roads we drive on or the trains we take, the access to water or the availability of electricity or high-speed internet that runs into our homes all creates a set of design systems that shape our lives in ways both big and small. To look at the design of infrastructure, then, is to see what is valued by a community. They give us clues about how to live and interact within them. This is the paradox of infrastructure. It can be both liberating and oppressive. It can give individual freedoms while limiting collective freedoms. In the wide-ranging new book, How Infrastructure Works Inside the Systems That Shape Our World, Deb Chakra shines a light on these systems that are so easy for us to overlook. I've been reading Deb for years, mostly through her excellent newsletter, MetaFoundry, where she writes about material science, feminism, and gender studies, and the intersection of technology and culture. So I was excited to have her on the show to talk about this new book of hers and so much more. We begin this conversation talking about infrastructure, how we define it, why we overlook it, and how we can rethink it to create systems that work for everyone. In the back half of the conversation, we talk about education. Deb is also a professor of engineering at the Olin College of Engineering and was instrumental in helping develop that school with the belief that engineering education could be taught in a different way. You'll find, I think, that what she's thinking about in engineering is completely applicable to design education as well. I feel like I learned so much from this conversation. If you liked this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts, an exclusive monthly newsletter, and they help keep this show free for everybody. So you can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and help support the show. Thank you for listening. And here's my conversation with Deb Chakra. I want to start with probably the biggest question or the maybe the hardest question or maybe the right. easiest question. It's going to be one of those. What is infrastructure? So it is, in fact, both the hardest and the easiest question. <laughs> so the, the biggest version of it is we tend to use the word infrastructure for all of the systems that we take for granted that underpin the thing that we're actually trying mm -hmm. to do. And so that's the broad sense in which you'll hear people say infrastructure a lot. For my purposes, for the book, I focused on networked 
infrastructural systems that are technological systems. So all of these are the things that we think of as utilities, right? So like water, sewage, electricity, telecommunications, um, utility gas, if you live in a place where you get, for example, natural gas to your house, mm-hmm. transportation, right? All of the sort of like, you know, when you say when you say infrastructure, if you say utilities, these are the things you think about. So that's really what the focus of the book is. Yeah, I mean, you say early in the book, sort of half joking, but also serious now, especially hearing you say that, that infrastructure is all the stuff that you don't think about. Um, can you tell me why that, that like, that you don't think about it, you know, that, that this, that this stuff happens in the background, why that's important to this definition? So it's, so I, it's really a set of enabling structures, right? It's a, it's typically a set of agreements so that you don't have to think about everything from first causes every time. And so, um, you know, so for example, our monetary system is infrastructure, right? Like when I, and you know, this is the thing you notice when you travel, right? When I go to, like I go to the coffee shop, I don't have to think about the, you know, how I'm going to pay for my coffee, right? It's like, we all have agreed that I'm paying for it in US dollars. And there's like, you know, if there's a card machine or whatever, the, whereas if I went to a different country, you know, I'm like, oh, wait, like, you know, is my bank card going to work here? Do I need to, you know, so like that. So it's the things you take for granted. The, there's sort of two reasons why we want to have things taken for granted, right? One is so that we just don't have to think about things all the time, right? We can do the mm. things that we want to do. And then, and that's, you know, that's what a lot of the purpose of infrastructure is for, to collectively do things together, where we can sort of take these sort of, um, the way we do things for granted. But technological infrastructures typically uh, provide for very basic or very universal needs, or both, right? So mm. water is both basic and universal. Communications, like telecommunications or transportation, are um, not survival needs, but they're absolutely universal needs, right? The need, the the um, the desire to communicate and to interact with other humans, right? Whether that's mm-hmm. online or whether that's by getting into a vehicle and going to physically be where they are. You write sort of towards the end of the book, you have this great line where you say, thinking of infrastructure as physical systems of networks and energy is only part of what we need to understand them as they exist today, much less the directions they'll be taking in the future. There are also human systems that incorporate particular ways of seeing, organizing, and acting in the world, which I think you were starting to kind of get to in that that answer. And that's sort of the subtitle of your book, this inside the systems that shape our world. Can you can you talk to me? I think for a lot of people, and even even for me when I was reading the book, I was noticing my the way I saw this change, I think of infrastructure as physical. I think of the roads, the wires, the pipes. Can you talk about this human component, the the cultural and political component of infrastructure here? Yeah. So, so first of all, there's, you know, so the subtitle of the book is inside the systems that shape our world. And so one is, what are the systems that we choose to build out to be these kinds of networked infrastructures, right? right? So how do we make the decision that we're going to do this? And then the second piece is once we have these systems in place, how does that, how do those systems then shape the decisions we make as individuals? And so something like water, water is, I think of it as kind of the er infrastructure because it's kind of easy to wrap our head around, right? Everybody needs water to survive. We need water every day. You can't put it off and get it later. Hmm. And if you have a whole bunch of people who live close together, then it's very, very efficient to build a single system that takes advantage of the fact that water flows downhill and that water will happily divide and subdivide itself into networks to deliver mm-hmm. water to where people need it, right? And it's it's clearly yeah. a thing that makes sense to do collectively because every single person will benefit from the system because every human needs water 
to survive. But, you know, we can make a similar type of argument for transportation. We can make a similar type of argument for electricity, that the existence of these networks um, provide, we sort of build these things together or collectively, and that enables us to do things as individuals. But the flip side of that is that once we have decided on these networks and built them out, that kind of changes what we can do. And water is actually in a way a weird example, because the thing I was going to say is, well, nobody ever gets, um, you know, if you have water delivered to your house, you don't get water from somewhere else. And of course, people do, right? People do get, um, you know, I drink, I like right. seltzer or like, you know, right, or, people, right. or like people, you know, buy, um, you know, get uh, uh, bottled water delivery. But, but, yeah. but. So water, water is a bit of a weird example, but, you know, nobody ever, you know, you don't get bottled water to shower in or to do your dishes in unless your water is really not potable. So let me let me sidestep that for a second. But so if we collectively decide we're going to build out a network of roads, which we did right then in the U.S., then that sets up some possibilities. It makes it possible for you to drive to work or to drive, you know, to your friend's house. Um, but we also, there's some decisions to not do things. So that means that it may be that you don't have a public transit network or a, a different kind of network. Mm -hmm. And so the collective decision to enable certain pathways can often preclude other pathways. And the nature of infrastructure making some things much, much easier for everyone also often means it makes it much, much more difficult to do anything that's different than right. that thing for everyone. Right. Right. And so that, you know, it's it's the um, it's that sort of famous line that first we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. Yeah. Right. That first we decide that we're going to build these collective infrastructure systems and then they forever, or at least for a very long time, they define what possibilities are open to us to the point where we often don't even see them as possibilities anymore. Right. It's like, of course, I have a car. Of course, I drive to work because the 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 other possibilities have been so completely closed off. I was really struck by this sort of central tension throughout the book between between these extremes that that infrastructure is it can provide freedom, you know, it can <laughs> give you time, you know, you don't have to think about these things They give you yeah. more time to do other things, but it can also be oppressive, you know, it can, it yeah. can make you be the same, it can give yeah. you accessibility in some aspects, but inaccessibility in others, it can create right. community, it can create isolation and create create standards, it can while preventing, you know, innovation or 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 alternates, and so how how do we sort of negotiate this this tension? Um, how do we sort of um, understand these extremes at something of the grand scale of infrastructure? So here's here's one way that I think about that. So um, I really love um, so the development of the economist Marjorie Sen. He talks about how he studied, you know, some of the world's poorest communities, mm -hmm. and his his um, he wrote a book called Develop "Development as as Freedom," and he really makes a case that the purpose of wealth and income, money, basically, is to give us the freedom to live the kinds of lives that we have reason to value, mm. right? So, and I maintain that first of all, um, on a day to day basis. Most of that, that side of it, the freedom to live the kind of life I have reason to value for me is actually provided by infrastructural systems, not by money per se. And because we mm. basically collectively use, we use our collective money to do, to build these systems to give us individual agency and individual freedom. And so this is why, for example, that unlike most brown middle-aged women, so most people who look like me, I don't spend 
my days getting clean water for my family or finding fuel for cooking, right? right. It's like, it means right. I get to do other things besides that. However, the, so these systems enable possibilities, but they also, you know, as we would think, sort of constrain other possibilities. So here's, you know, another good example of this is that I, so I have a car and cars, cars are really sold to us on the basis of providing freedom. Right. 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 That like, right. and, and it is true that if you have a car, you know, you can just walk out of your house at pretty much any time of day or night and get in behind the wheel of your car and go. Cause we've built out the systems that make that absolutely possible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I basically I say it's like you can drive anywhere you want at any time of day or night, as long as you're not trying to get into downtown Boston at rush hour. <laughs> and um, so they also constrain the things you can do. But also, like, even if you're if you're driving, you are, I really hope, not doing anything else besides driving. Right. Right. right it's right. like, you know, it's like your commute is like, well, this is the thing you're going to do, you know, for, you know, it's about half an hour for me to get from my home in the city to the suburban campus where I teach. And it's like for that half an hour, I'm, I'm not doing very much else besides driving. And correctly, I you know, it's commuting in Boston traffic. Right. I don't get to be on my phone. I don't get to chat with my friends, you know, and um, and so the these systems that basically enable us, you know, the, the sort of incredible freedom also really constrain the ways in which we spend our time. And in fact, I have a car. I actually have a driver's license because the college where I teach is in the suburbs and there's really no good way to get to it by public transit. And um, so, I, yes, I have the freedom of having a car. I am simultaneously constrained to using my car. In fact, the reason why I live downtown is because if I do want to get to downtown Boston during rush hour, I just take the subway. Right, <laughs> right. I have access to this whole other set of, of freedom. So that's an example of how these systems both provide us with tremendous freedom, but they also constrain the pathways that we go down, often in ways that we don't even notice as constraints, right? They're just the way you do things, right? I think, if I, yeah. Oh, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think transportation is such a great example of that. And and I'm going to try to phrase this as a question for you to sort of build on this. But, you know, I, I lived in New York for most of my adult life in New York right. City and left New York a couple of years ago and got a car for the first time as an adult right. at a car when I was, you know, a teenager, but first time driving again for a long time. Um, and I was sort of confused by my feelings around having a car in that in many ways, I had more freedoms to get around than I did in New York with the subway, which I love, like, I I love the New York subway system. Right, same. Um, But I felt like the subway, you know, gave me more freedom than the car, even though in reality, the car, I could get in the car anytime and go anywhere. Uh, You know, and so there was this like tension between I have this thing that, um, in many ways is giving me more, but it feels like it's giving me less. And so the, the road system versus public transportation or the personal car versus the subway, you know, infrastructure at large is a way to sort of see what we value both collectively, but also individually, you know, because when I'm in the car, I'm isolated where I'm on the subway, I'm in the city, you know, I'm with other people. And that was set up through these, you know, infrastructural systems. Yeah. So cars, you know, the ideal way to use a car is that you have, you have your car and you have your road network and there's no one else on the roads. 
<laughs> right? Right, right it's like it's like and, and that's why that's why like you know every car commercial you've ever seen pretty much just has a car like on the road and there were no other cars around right right and um and so cars are really good at providing individual freedom but public transit is actually really good at providing collective freedom Right. And in fact, actually, like, you know, like I, I lived in London for, I've, you know, spent a lot of time in New York. I lived in London for six months. I did not have a car in London. And public transit actually works better when more people use it. Cars work worse when more people use them. And, um, mm. and that, you know, so that in that sense, like transportation is a really good example of how collective systems provide individual agency and in particular how they scale. And so the US, of course, famously made this giant investment into the individual freedom. Of roads, which were, you know, which were, I would say, great, kind of okay in the 1950s, right? And um, not, very, and you know, it works in the U.S. There's many places where, you know, it it still works, right? The built environment is built to define, it's built to facilitate that. But there are, of course, lots of places, including most major cities, where it doesn't work very well. And further to that. And this is, I think, I think the thing that's really been sort of showing up in the last sort of 10 or so years is where we have a real understanding of the ways in which these systems, where if you have cars, which are really good for individual freedoms and individual agency and like getting around as individuals mm -hmm. versus cities, which are really about places where there are a lot of people, mm -hmm. right? That cars don't work amazingly well, right? It's like, it's not just like to the driver, you have to deal with traffic. It's like parking. It's... Right. Right. Traffic safety. Right. It's, you know, do cars play well with other people? And then, of course, there's a whole issue of, you know, I said when I drive, I'm paying attention to driving and nothing else. And that presumes that I am I am, you know, aware and capable and I'm not too tired. And but also that I, you know, I'm wearing my contact lenses. Right. And <laughs> um, I'm over yeah. the age of 16 so I can legally drive and I haven't started losing my senses as which, you know, as 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 we age, we will all have this loss of capacity. Right. That means that maybe you shouldn't be in charge of a 2000 pound vehicle going at 100 miles an hour. And um, and so, you know, we've invested so strongly in these systems that work well as individuals. And we're really starting to see the limitations of them in as as they work as um, collective systems. And so, yeah. So, like, I think transportation is a really the sort of cars versus public transit in cities is a really stark illustration of the sort of individual agency versus collective agency um, and how we support sort of in, what you can do as an individual through building collective systems versus supporting what you do as an individual through and of course cars also depend on collective systems in the form of roads but right. our sort of engagement with them is that as like an individual you know, and as you say, you know, cars are isolating um, for exactly that reason, right? It's like it's like you're in your car by yourself, physically right. isolated from other people, right. and that is not the case for good or for ill. That's not the case on the subway. I have a I have a really weird question that I feel like we're sort of talking around in in some ways, and I want to I want to mm -hmm. hear you sort of talk about it really directly, and and maybe here's where we sort of shift from transportation to something like water or sure. you know electricity or, or or natural gas or something, because you know I'm I'm really interested in this idea that that part of infrastructure is that it's this thing that we don't think about, mm -hmm. um, you know that it that it does liberate us in this way, and then your book is all about making us think about it. Right. <laughs> it's about taking these invisible systems, these these decisions that we're sort of, you know, 
made many times before we were born, um, right. highlighting the ideologies of how these things come to be. And I I want to hear hear you talk about the value in making these invisible systems visible. Um, you know, what what do we lose with not having to think about them? And then what can we gain from thinking about them again or thinking about them for the first time? Right. So in 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 a perfect world, it would actually be nice if we didn't have to think about these systems. <laughs> okay. Right. Like I don't, you know, I'm I'm not like a You don't want like, to write yeah. this book. Yeah. Um yeah. And and actually, you know, one of my favorite ways in which you can think about the systems and not think about them is um uh is when so I live in a place that has a one percent for art for public spending, and so there's a water treatment plant, and one percent of the water treatment plant bought a bunch of really lovely public art. Um, my hometown of Toronto just did a major sewage separation, like a stormwater separation process, which is really just like re like digging up and rebuilding your sewers, and then nobody oh, really wow. notices that anything has changed. And they built a beautiful, beautiful piece of um, public art on one of the sites where they do kind of stormwater remediation. And it's like, that's kind of the way in which I think we should think about infrastructure that we have, we ignore it except for the fact that we have beautiful bridges and train stations and beautiful pieces of public art to tell us, you know, that we've done this, this mm -hmm. huge thing. Unfortunately, that we do not have that luxury and we don't have it for a couple of different reasons. So one is we have a real understanding that these systems do not in fact work well for everyone. Right. right. And right. so this is, you know, the building highways to African-American neighborhoods. This is understanding, you know, traffic issues. This is, um, you know, neighbor uh, communities that don't have access, um, don't have reliable access to clean water. Um, this is uh, uh, inequity in Internet access, which became a huge issue during the pandemic. Right. Who has right. good, you know, basically making all of our civic services available through the Internet. Then who has good broadband and who doesn't. So the first piece is that we don't get to not think about our infrastructural systems because we didn't do a good enough job of mm. making sure that the provision was universal. That's the first thing. The second piece is that um, our infrastructural systems, because they're the way that we act in the world and because we are material beings and it's a physical world, we need energy to do that. And most of that energy comes from combustion, right? It comes from burning fossil fuels, which puts put CO2 in the air. So if to move your like actual physical, you know, body through the world or to do anything with it, you know, to do your laundry, to fly mm -hmm. to the other side of the planet, to talk to your friends on over the internet, all of these things require energy. Historically, in human society, most of that energy has come from burning things. And we are understanding the limitations of that, right? What happens when you just keep burning things and putting CO2 in the atmosphere? So that's the second reason why we can't afford to ignore our infrastructure because we need to think about how to decarbonize it. And because most of how we use energy, we use collectively through these collective systems, there's there's a limit to what you can do as an individual to, to um, reduce your carbon footprint right. because you don't use energy individually, you use energy collectively or as part of these collective systems. Even if you said, I don't care, we're just going to build these systems, we're just going to burn lots of fuel, whatever, we'll be fine. You know, we'll just build new systems and use more energy and it'll be all, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. There's the other problem, which is that all of these systems that I'm focusing on move resources around the planet and through our landscape to where our bodies are. Mm. And the problem, of course, is that the stable landscape that they were built for is no longer stable or it's different than what was currently built. So like Portland um, had a run of, of uh, kind of 90 plus degree days 
last year or two right, years ago. Right, yeah. And it meant that all of the, or and London did too, actually. So all of the rail systems were not designed for such hot days and the rails would expand in the heat. And it meant that they either, I think, I think both cities actually had to suspend some rail service entirely because the rails were no longer safe because they had expanded because it was 10 degrees hotter or 20 degrees hotter than what they had really been designed for. And so the other problem with, with our infrastructure and climate change is that if we have more storms, if we have more wildfires or more hurricanes or more extreme weather days, then the systems are designed for a landscape that effectively no longer exists. And you can't not have them pass through the landscape. That's kind of what they do, right? They're networks that move things around. Mm -hmm. So if the landscape is changing, you're in trouble, right? This is an unignorable problem. The other sort of interesting tension here is this, um, you know, the difference between sort of like public goods and private companies. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm, I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about sort of the role of publicness in infrastructure. <laughs> and, you know, I live in, I think a lot of people live in an area where, you know, like electricity or the internet is a private company, but it's sort of monopolized because of the way the infrastructure is. And you were talking earlier about sort of non-monetary value in these systems. Yeah. Um, and so what happens when infrastructure becomes private uh, and there is now a business goal that sometimes is maybe counter to making sure that the trains run on time so people get to where they need to be or that everybody has, you know, drinking water, et cetera, et cetera. So infrastructure, infrastructural systems, by and large, are not market goods, right? They aren't things where you can just be like, oh, I like this thing, I'm going to buy it, or I'll buy it next week, or I'll buy it if the price falls. Right, like, right. Right. And and this is, you know, it's kind of it sounds kind of dumb, but it's also super obvious, right? Like you can't just get your water next week, right? right. You can't, you can't, it's even hard to, you know, below a below a threshold, it's even hard to use less water, right? We need water to survive. And broadly, the same thing is true for the for things like electricity. It's definitely through, true for things like, um, you know, the energy we use to heat our homes. Um, it's also true for, now it's true for things like telecommunications, right? If you're accessing services through the internet, if you don't have access, it's not a thing that you could live without. What that means is, so that's the first thing, right? These are not market mm -hmm. goods, right? These typically, if these are things that are built as collective systems because everybody needs them or because most people need them, then they're not things that you can live without. The second piece is because they're about bringing resources to where your body, are, body is and because they're typically built out as networks, they are network monopolies. What that means is that um, this is why you have like a cable company and a... Right electric provider right and there's you know there's a little bit of finessing where it's like we have a network but you have different people providing it but really there's just kind of one network that comes to your house and you don't get to choose between three different water suppliers to your house mm -hmm. right. Right? right and because because it's one physical network that brings water to your house and what that means is that if you are unhappy you don't get to you can't change your provider right and so we um you know so the so we frown on monopolists and the reason why we frown on people, on corporations having monopoly power is because we understand that they are ripe for exploitation, right? That if you have a monopoly, you can charge people whatever you want to charge them and they will pay for it. And that's dangerous enough in general, which is why, you know, we have things like federal antitrust legislation around monopolies. But it's it's catastrophic when you're thinking in terms of things that are basic human needs. And in fact, you know, it is a staple of dystopian science fiction to have private 
you know, privatized, fully privatized <laughs> water, right? And it's right, like, right. you know, you have to, you know, it's, you know, the sort of, um, we live in a world where it's like, if you don't have enough water, money to pay for water, um, you suffer. So that's, and that's actually, it turns out that's actually even only half of the story, right? That's bad enough. The other part of the story is that these are typically, all of these systems typically rely on shared common pool resources, right? So whether that's water in the environment, whether that's the wireless spectrum, right? Which is that there's one wireless spectrum that's shared by all of our wireless telecommunications, whether that's the CO2, you know, our shared atmosphere that we're putting CO2 into. Um, all of these systems, you know, they're not, they're not, these are, you know, these are, material systems that are embedded in the world. And that means that they have an impact on people who live in the world, which mm -hmm. is all of us. And so the other piece of it is that you can make, you can make an enormous amount of money on infrastructural systems because you're providing something that's not a market good. It's possible for you to have a network monopoly, but also because the resources that you're using to provide those goods are often coming from our shared environments. The waste that's generated is similarly being put in our shared environments. And that often means that there are externalities that are not monetary and that may not be accounted for. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so for example, a good, you know, if you put CO2 in the atmosphere, it, you know, we're going to have to deal with the, we are starting to deal with the consequences of that. It's not a thing that either the company or the person who bought the fuel really paid for. And, you know, if you have a company that, um, you know, is responsible for sewage and and puts untreated sewage into the um, like local water systems, right, that's not a thing that is measured in dollars, right? That's a thing that's measured in quality of life. Um, that's right. a thing that's measured in your kids getting sick. Right. And so all of this together, the sort of network monopoly piece, the fact that these are not market goods, the fact that they're, you know, they're universal which means that they usually cannot be treated as something you can postpone until like later. Right. Um, and the fact that they draw on our shared environments means that they really, really, really do not lend themselves to for-profit corporate corporations because the moral hazard of doing the absolute minimum you can get away with in terms of maintenance, in terms of the environment, in terms of you know the human costs, and also charging the absolute maximum that you can get away with since you have a captive audience because it's a network monopoly means that it's always a challenge. And one of the ways in which we can address this challenge is through extremely careful regulation um, and extremely, you know, heavy duty regulation. And we're not actually all that amazing at this, right? Which is why we all know stories of, um, you know, sewage companies that dump water or we, you know, untreated environmental right. Issues. So, like, typically, one way or another, we end up paying the cost as a society, right? Through regulation or through remediation or whatever. There is no guarantee that not for profit collective systems, whether that's mutual aid or co ops or, you know, traditional municipal or public systems, there's no guarantee that they will, you know, not do these things, right? But at least they don't have the moral hazard of trying to make. A profit and not try to do the the minimum of everything else right at least at least mm. nominally they um you know they they will incorporate these non-monetary quality of life you know quality of the environment type externalities for the people that they serve and ultimately you know no company cares about the well-being of your children that's not your job right 
and but we we do right (laughs) right Right. and and we are the beneficiaries of things that were created for for our well-being and um i you know i've done a huge amount obviously i've done a huge amount of research in this field and i have any number of stories of private systems that became public because this you know this understanding of like yeah you can make a ton of money off of this and that means you're making it off you know, you're that essentially you're making that money off of the people who need the service that you're providing. And that means we'd be much better off providing it um, as a public service. Right? That's basically the history of most um, utilities in major cities, uh, in many, many, many major cities, many of these utilities. And so if we just kind of recognize that outright and act accordingly, then that opens up the path to move forward. And the other thing, of course, is that the reason why governments make enormous investments in public infrastructure is because there is an understanding that it both underpins the quality of life of the people who live there, and also it underpins economic productivity, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not like this is like, it's it's in opposition to economic growth or in opposition to you know capitalism. It is really just saying, look, you know, capitalism is great for things that are in the market, but these are not market goods. And we want to use a different system and historically have used a different system for public goods, for things that that rely on common pool resources, for things that um, are significant contributors to quality of life or even just straight survival. What's really interesting to me here is... You know, so many of these systems were designed by people before I was born. You know, they were put in place before I was born. They were not always accounting for me, for the next generation, you know, for for how how our lives will change. And it's also really easy to think about infrastructure globally, massively, to think about these things as as like incredibly large. And towards the end of the book, you start talking about I, I don't really know what else to call them, sort of alternative structures, um, mm-hmm. sort of emerging uh, ways to think about infrastructure. And I'm I'm really interested to hear you talk about sort of this, this move between the individual and the collective. You have this term inf- infrastructural citizenship, mm-hmm. uh, which was a phrase that was new to me. Can you talk about that and talk about sort of how we as individuals and also maybe as like, smaller communities, not just humans generally, but, you know, neighborhoods, local, you know, local collectives, how we can think about infrastructure at these smaller scales to start to make these changes that you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of infrastructural citizenship is we, you know, we think of citizenship as a, as a a relationship that we have between other people who have, you know, the same passports, right? Other people Mm. from the same country. And there might be some cultural, there might be some cultural commonalities. There absolutely is a, you have a right to live in these sort of typically proximate areas and the, that, you know, you have some sense of responsibility to other people with the same citizen, same citizenship. And you also um, are a beneficiary of this relationship, right? And so, we're, and, you know, the idea of nation states and citizenships is not actually that old, um, relatively speaking. And so, the point that I I made, and the thing I think about in terms of infrastructural citizenship, is that we all have bodies, and those bodies are somewhere on the planet, and those bodies have needs for resources. And no matter where you are, you have a sort of a similar set of needs. And so we've built out these systems to bring resources to where they're used. And so that could be, 
you know, water that that could actually be taking away things like like sewage, mm. um, but that's also like electricity or power to do things. And what this means is that we, you know, we might be linked to each other because we have a common passport, but we're really linked to each other because we all have bodies and those bodies are somewhere in the landscape and we are linked to each other through that landscape and the networks that traverse this landscape because we're physical beings in a physical right. in a right. physical world. And this has nothing to do with what your passport says, right? right. And right. This, this, this has to do with like, who you live near and or not even live near but who you are presently near and what resources are kind of in the environment around you and the other thing about infrastructure citizenship is that that relationship not only exists today but i know that 50 years from now 100 years from now maybe even a thousand years from now there are also going to be people living humans with the similar basic needs living in the same places where we live today just as they lived here 50 or 100 years or a thousand years ago and so the idea of infrastructural citizenship is to sort of expand out from this idea of who do we have responsibility to and why into this recognition that, you know, the national borders kind of aren't it, right? Mm -hmm. What it is, is, is the, the actual physical environment that we live in. Having said that, the relevant size of that is going to be highly dependent on what the system is and where you live. So right. I live in the Northeast. It rains a lot. You know, my entire water supply is, you know, within, you know, 25 or so miles of where I live, kind of 40, 40 kilometers of where I live. And that is not true if you live in the West, um, if you live, in, or, or at least if you live in the Southwest of the U.S., if you live in, in the North, it can be a little bit different, right? So the yeah, the, relative, yeah. the appropriate scale for water um, in the Northeast might be, you know, under, under 50 miles, under hundred kilometers. That may not be the case for lots of, lots of the Southwest. The appropriate scale for transportation, maybe it's the entire continent, right? For like, for ground transportation is the entire continent. The appropriate scale for telecommunications is absolutely global, right? We take it for granted that we have um, a connection to people kind of no matter where on the globe that they live. And so the idea, so basically this is essentially recognizing these systems as relationships between each other and then the natural sort of size or scale for those may or may not map onto sort of existing political boundaries and mm -hmm. as new technologies are developed and as we figure out how we are going to um, transform these systems specific like particularly because of climate change then there may be different scales that make more sense in a way that they did, they might not have made sense, you know, 50 years ago. I want to sort of take this conversation and and change it as we head into to the end and talk about your teaching work and your work sure. at Olin, because I think that's actually very related to what you were just talking about. And so you've you've um, you're an engineering professor at at Olin, um, and you were sort of involved with helping start that and sort of in you know thinking about what a new type of engineering school would be. Can you tell me a little bit first about how you got involved with that and what the goals were with sort of this new new ways of thinking about teaching engineering? Sure. So, um, so I, you know, I have a fairly traditional, you know, technical engineering professor background. I um, did my graduate work at the University of Toronto. I did a postdoc at MIT, and but I was always interested in academic government, and I was really always interested in teaching. So when Olin mm. opened. Um, and they were just, you know, recruiting faculty. I went to a, a, a talk at MIT that was, hey, we're starting this new college. We're looking for people who are interested in these things. And I thought, this is this is the thing I want to do. And I applied and I got the job. Mm. 
Okay. Nice. So, so I know it's like, it's actually like the great, I cannot believe that they were hiring someone who had like right. in, in material science, which is my field right. at the, at the mo exact moment I was looking for um, a, a position. It's one of the great, wonderful coincidences of my life. So Olin was founded with the idea of thinking about how we teach engineering students differently. And with very much what I think about now, I think about as sort of professional skills. So the ability to work in teams, the ability mm -hmm. to sort of solve open-ended problems, to think about the sort of the larger context. Um, returning a little bit to engineering is kind of a hands-on design thing as opposed to the sort of math and science. My undergraduate degree is all mm -hmm. math and science, basically. So mm -hmm. getting, getting away from that and getting a little bit more into you can solve real problems in the real world. So that was a piece of it and a piece of why we were founded. Over the course of getting the college up and running, we realized that we had kind of semi-inadvertently and then and then quite deliberately created a set of circumstances that really fostered motivation in students. And my colleague, John Stoke, um, was one of the people who did a lot of work in this. And um, Edward DC is the person, is the, the um, uh, psychology researcher who's most associated with this. So the idea is that to be that that people are not motivated or unmotivated, that their engagement is predicated on the circumstances that they're in. And for folks to be motivated, and particularly in educational context, they need kind of three things. They need to have some autonomy, so some control over what they're doing. They need to have a purpose, which often takes the form of community. So doing things because mm -hmm. the people around you are doing it. And they need to have what DC calls competency development, which is, I think, of a sort of scaffolding, right? To know that you're getting better at something. So, you know, we realize that doing things like, oh, we're going to have open-ended engineering design projects where students are going to work in teams and they're going to pick a topic that they're interested in. And we as professors will provide the scaffolding in which they will like learn and work. And we realize that this really dovetailed with these ideas around motivation. Mm. And and so that gave us the opportunity to really focus on that side of it. So it was less, you know, vocational, you know, these are the skills that the marketplace wants in engineers and a lot more. These are the things that really help people learn, right? right. And help people be motivated to learn. And um, so that became um, our, for many of us, that became kind of our larger focus to think about how do we create learning experiences that really foster this kind of engagement. And so that's partly how I started off as someone who's like a very technically focused person. I taught material science and bioengineering and then started moving more into teaching engineering design and to thinking about these sort of learning experiences where I'm helping my students develop really the, metacog the metacognition and the tools of reflective practice that they will right. then use. And the form, and you know, I, I teach I teach our first year students the first semester engineering design course. Um, and I really think about it as creating the learning experiences that allow them to develop this set of tools as designers, as engineers, right. you know, as people who bring ideas into the world. And that ended up being my real focus as an educator um, over the course of the last kind of 10 or 15 years. I, I'm really interested in this as a design graphic design professor where mm -hmm. you know graphic design you know is also a, I, I'm not I, I do not mean to compare graphic design to engineering here but also it has a very technical component or historically it had a very technical component and a lot of that um, sort of doesn't work anymore just with the sort of you know changes in the profession and so I was really interested in in the way I've heard you talk about 
engineering education. I've heard you I've heard you refer to this before as the sort of Tetris versus Minecraft model. Can you talk <laughs> about that metaphor and how that has become like a way of you way for you to sort of think about the classroom? Yeah, for sure. So uh so I I love playing Tetris, like many people do. And the thing that makes Tetris really satisfying is that it is all competitive development, right? As you do a thing, mm. you know exactly what you're doing. You don't have very much autonomy, right? It's like you're just, you know, you're just moving those little blocks around. And but it's super addictive, right? It's very Mihaly, Chicks and Mihaly style flow, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that yeah. you're that it's because it's being pitched to you at exactly the right level. And that's really what my undergrad was, right? It was like I just did a whole bunch of problem sets, right. and the problem sets were like super satisfying. And the next one was like slightly harder than the previous one. And it was like playing Tetris. But like playing Tetris, it was individually focused, right? It didn't have, in many cases, it didn't have an apparent larger purpose beyond itself. And I'm not saying that everything has to I think things can be just fun right, right? like right, I, I yeah. don't I don't think that everything should be productive I think games and play are really important um but so the thing I compared it to was learning how to play Minecraft and play Minecraft where you know most of the kids I know who play Minecraft you play it with other people so you like learn how to do things or you you do it so you because you want to be on a Minecraft server with your friends it's a lot harder. It's a lot more open-ended, which means that it's a lot, you know, often harder to figure out what to do, which is why there are like YouTube tutorials. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a different, it's not even so much that it's differently or more motivating. It's that it has a different weighting of the, you know, I said the three factors were kind of autonomy, competitive development, and purpose or community. Right. And it has a really different weighting that instead of really focusing on the competitive development scaffolding piece. It really, it really emphasizes the autonomy piece and the community piece. And so one of the ways in which I think about the engineering education um, that we do is that we have a, a, we often have a somewhat different weighting, right? right? One that basically has, um, is weighted more towards Minecraft and less towards Tetris. But partly it's actually just having a broader range of potential kinds of experiences for students. So like if you right. don't want to play Tetris, right, there's right. no other possibilities, right, versus the only way you can become an engineer is by playing Tetris. And also because it's not really clear that like being playing Tetris prepares you for a world that's a lot more like playing Minecraft. How did, So how does that change your role as teacher, professor, facilitator in the classroom when, when you are thinking about not just saying like, here's how you play Tetris, but here are all the possibilities within Minecraft. That sort of changes what you have to do. How, how do you think about that? So one of the ways in which I think about it is um, I think of myself as designing learning experiences where mm. I think about um, what am I hoping that students, um, you know, what are, what are, what are they trying to learn how to do? And then how, what kind of experiences can they have that will help them get to that point? So that's, you know, the first piece of it is just, you know, instead of just, I'm going to write a syllabus, I, it's much more of a focus on what those learning experiences are. There's mm -hmm. also quite a bit more letting go. So I definitely, and one of the reasons why I teach <laughs> design is because the I see my role there as I provide the scaffolding to be a designer, but I can't, and this I'm sure will sound very, very familiar to you, Jared. The actual act of design has to come from students, right? They have to right. practice it and they learn how to have to learn right. how to do it. Yeah. And they have to develop the ability to look at what they did and reflect on it and use that to move forward. And so I definitely think of it much more as I'm providing the circumstances and the scaffolding for them to have those experiences, which is really different than, and then, you know, within that scaffolding, they, you know, they design what they want to design or they, 
they build what they want to build because the goal is for them to develop that set of skills, not to build a certain thing, much less learn like a certain thing. And so on, on the one hand, it's like I, you know, obviously I think about how do I, how do we just create these learning experiences? Um, on the other hand, I, you know, this is not what my background is, right? I wasn't trained as a design educator and I love working with my colleagues who were, and I, and in fact, you know, one of my main professional goals is to level up mm -hmm. as a design educator by, by collaborating with and observing and learning from my design colleagues, because I feel like they are the ones who like, this is their staff right. and trade to help teach your students how to think about this within, you know, within this field, rather than having them learn to have sort of specific, like I can do X, Y, and Z, basically have them develop the ability to do what they're doing, make decisions about it, see how they did, reflect on it and make new decisions moving forward. So I, I you know, I feel like at the high level, it's like I'm designing these learning experiences and particularly at the sort of interaction level, I'm always, you know, trying to learn how to help support my students better as they go through this process, which we all understand is a really challenging transition. I have one more question sort of about that that I'm hoping will then connect back to the book <laughs> also, <laughs> um, you know, because one of the themes throughout all of your your work is this idea of ideas of care ideas of systems of care, ideas of repair. You wrote that piece for the Atlantic, I Am Not a Maker, which was, you know, about ideas uh, of repair. And that comes through in the book too, that, um, you know, to think about these systems, part of our role when they have been made, you know, before is how do we care for them and how do we repair them? And I'm curious how you talk about that in the classroom. Um, you know, I often find, and I'm generalizing here, um, but you know, young students, they want to, they want to make new things. They want to, you know, they want to innovate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's a lot of value in talking about repairing things, about caring for things, about stewardship. How do you think about that in an engineering classroom? How do you talk about your students? Uh, how do you talk to your students about sort of entering into these systems and, um, I don't know, caretaking, you know, redesigning, repairing, uh, you know, reevaluating. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, that now I'm like, hmm, hmm, that is definitely a, a real question. Cause certainly, you know, engineering design definitely is still kind of focused on making new things right. in the world. Right. Um, I also teach, I teach a course on infrastructure studies, which has a much greater emphasis on sort of maintenance and repair. Mm. And so one of the things so the first thing I, I, I think I, I want to sort of say to this is that I think that there is actually a continuum between sort of maintenance on the one hand and like brand banking new innovation on the other, right? It passes through renewal. It passes through, um, you know, sort of, sort of transformation. And that's especially true. We sort of see this for infrastructure because we very, very rarely, you know, th we don't throw everything out and like start over again, right? right? We tend right. to build systems on top of each other. We tend to maintain you know, we maintain the systems we have. So, um, so getting away from the idea that these things are, you know, in opposition, um, but, uh, <laughs> but like, that is a really good point, right? There's a really, really deep bias towards um, making new things. And certainly I kind of want my students to have that experience of making new things because a lot of care and maintenance does involve similar sorts of problem solving, right? Uh, that yeah, that yeah. you know, it's um, 
it might not be like a, a totally de novo system, but I mean, we've all had this, we've all had the experience of like something broke and we're trying to fix it and we fix it by figuring out a new way to do things. Right. It's like, it's never, there's always that sort of problem solving um, mm -hmm. physical piece in the world. So a chunk of it, I think is less about um, we're teaching them how to design and we're not teaching them how to fix things and more that by teaching them how to make new things, we also to some extent um, are teaching them how to do that kind of problem solving in existing circumstances. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, you know, I wrote that why I'm not a maker piece because I do broadly agree with you, right. That we uh, are much, much better teaching and thinking and valuing doing new things than we are at um, valuing repair in the specific context of infrastructure, we're kind of in a weird place because normally I would be like, we need to maintain our infrastructure. And now I actually think we need to transform it. <laughs> I mean, we'll maintain, you know, like, you know, we're not going to rebuild all our water pipes, but there's going to be a giant ton of full on innovation that's going to happen as well as everything between, right? The renewal, the sort of new systems, right, new kinds right. of systems, and then like totally new technologies that didn't exist a century ago. And so there really is, you know, just as in all of our lives, we have a balance between creating new things and doing care work and doing maintenance work and doing repair. Um, that's, I think, also true at the society level, and it's certainly true for infrastructure. And so I think moving forward, there will be sort of a set of roles um, and then, you know, a part, a part of it is actually as a society, you know, valuing all of those roles, not just the, you know, it's like new, innovative, transformative, but, um, but recognizing all those different pieces of it. I think that's a great way to wrap this up. So I'm going to ask you the question that I used to end all of these uh, conversations. I'm curious what you're reading right now. So um, I think this is a galley brag, um, but the two, <laughs> two books that I've been super, super we're looking forward to. I've just got in my hand in the galley, so I've just started reading them both. And so um, one of them is a book by Jay Owens called Dust, and it's out in the UK uh -huh. and it'll be out in the UK, out in the US um, very soon. Jay used to write a newsletter called Disturbances, and she's, she's been using Dust as a sort of incredible lens into many aspects of our modern modern world. Um, so that's one of the books. And then the other book is a book called Systems Ultra by George mm. Voss. And, and it's a book, not unlike, um, I mean, in both of these books, I feel like are very, I mean, I know George and Jay are both friends of mine. They're both kind of close fellow travelers to mm. how infrastructure works. So Systems Ultra is again about sort of understanding um, the systems, George uses some very specific ones and the ways in which we have agency within them. So in the ways that which we can not just sort of, I'm really kind of focused on these are good systems, let's keep them going. And she's really focused on like resistance and um, as well as sort of repair and rebuilding, right? All right. of the manifold ways in which we interact with these systems. So that's um, Dust by, by Jay Owens and Systems Ultra by George by George Voss. And Systems Ultra, I think, will be out of the US in January. So I've been excited about both these books coming down the pike for a while. And so I'm super excited um, to be reading them both. <laughs> well, your book is called How Infrastructure Works Inside the Systems That Shape Our World. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Deb, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Jared. And that was my conversation with Deb Chakra. It was recorded on September 14th, 2023. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu, whose new album, In Electric Time, is out now. 
The show is and always will be free thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we're doing here, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us on social media at Surface Podcast. You can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.